Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In March 1991, a media circus descended on the normally quiet New Hampshire town of Exeter to witness a trial that some journalists were calling the Sex, Lies, and Murder Case. In fact, so many reporters turned up, they couldn't all fit in the small courtroom. So a separate area was set up down the hall to watch the proceedings on closed-circuit TV. And they weren't the only ones watching the drama unfold. That's because this trial was the first ever to be covered gavel-to-gavel live on U.S. television. It was a landmark moment for cameras and the criminal justice system. And it marked the beginning of the true crime media obsession that continues to this day. The intense coverage of this particular case may have also prevented the accused from getting a fair trial and set her up for a lifetime behind bars, while the actual killers have already been set free. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at a sensational murder trial that gripped the nation 30 years ago and find out what has happened since the cameras went away. This is the story of Pamela Smart. On the evening of May 1st, 1990, 22-year-old Pamela Smart was attending a board meeting at the high school where she worked in the small coastal community of Hampton, New Hampshire. Smart was a media coordinator at the school, writing news releases and teaching students how to use AV equipment. And she also volunteered to facilitate a mandatory program for freshmen called Project Self-Esteem. The former honors student and cheerleader had recently completed a university degree in communications and dreamt of becoming a television reporter. She loved heavy metal music, hosting a program on her college radio station called Metal Madness. And when her husband bought them a dog, she named him Halen after her favorite band, Van Halen. Pam met Greg Smart at a party when she was still in college. They married in 1989. Pam was 21, and Greg, who worked as an insurance agent, was 23. They moved into a rented townhome near his parents in Derry, New Hampshire, about 45 minutes from Pam's job in Hampton. The night of Pam's school meeting, Greg drove to their home on Misty Morning Drive, expecting a quiet night alone. When he walked in the front door, he called for the couple's dog, Halen. Then, without warning, two teens lying in wait attacked him. Greg was repeatedly punched, then forced at knife point to get down on his knees. He begged for his life as the teens demanded he hand over his wallet. Then one of the teens pulled out a gun, and holding it a couple of inches from Greg's head, the teen fired a single bullet. The boys ran out the back door and joined two others who were waiting in a car. They sped away as Greg lay dying on the floor. When Pamela Smart returned home at around 10 p.m., she found her husband collapsed just inside the front door of their townhouse. Once police arrived, they found the apartment had been ransacked and the couple's dog, Halen, had been locked in the basement. But the next day, a dairy police captain said he didn't believe the crime was a random attack or a bungled burglary. Officer Loring Jackson didn't explain further, 
leaving an air of mystery around what had happened that night on Misty Morning Drive. Shortly after Greg Smart's funeral, Pamela sat down for an interview with the local TV station WMUR. She said she was devastated by Greg's death, but was managing to keep it together. Sometimes I ask myself, I can't figure out where the strength is coming from, but it seems like it's coming from inside. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a part of Greg or whatever that's helping me go on with everything. During the interview, Pam criticized police for quickly ruling out burglary, saying it was probably, quote, some jerk, some drug addict person looking for a quick 10 bucks. Then six weeks after the murder of Greg Smart, investigators got the break they were looking for. A man from the working-class New Hampshire town of Seabrook drove to a police station and turned in a handgun that he believed was used to kill Greg. This led to the arrest of three teenage boys in connection with the murder of Greg Smart. 16-year-old William Billy Flynn, 16-year-old Patrick Pete Randall, and 17-year-old Vance J.R. Latamy, the son of the man who turned in the gun. The boys were known as the Three Musketeers by their fellow classmates at Winnicunnet Regional High, the same school where Pamela Smart ran the media services department. Police released few other details about the case, including a potential motive. The public was still in the dark about the horrific crime that had shocked their small community. That is until a few weeks later, when police arrested a fourth suspect, and the murder of Greg Smart became a media sensation. On August 1, 1990, Pamela Smart was at her desk at Winnicunnet Regional High School in Hampton when investigators showed up at her office. Dairy Detective Daniel Pelletier said, Well, Pam, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is we've solved the murder of your husband. Pelletier then added, The bad news is you're under arrest. Pam was suspected of plotting the crime with the three teens who had already been arrested, one of whom was said to be her lover. Police were charging her with conspiracy to commit murder, accomplice to murder, and tampering with a witness. Members of the media who had been tipped off about the pending arrest were on hand outside the high school when a handcuffed Pamela Smart walked to a waiting police car. Her picture was plastered on the front pages of newspapers in New England and beyond. The revelation of the deadly love triangle grabbed the attention of news outlets across the country with headlines that read, Teacher charged with talking student into killing her husband. The story also caught the eye of Hollywood. Several Los Angeles film companies began calling reporters and some of the principal people involved in an attempt to get information on the case. It was reported that police believed Pam was having an affair with 16-year-old Billy Flynn, who shot Greg Smart in the head after ransacking the townhouse to make it look like a foiled burglary. And police allege that Pam coached the three teens on how to carry out the murder. The salacious story seemed like something out of a movie. Behind the scenes, police had been speaking with a teenage girl after they received a tip that she had information about the case. 15-year-old Cecilia Pierce was Pam's intern at Winnicunnet Regional High and the two had become friends and would sometimes hang out together after hours. She wouldn't say anything to police at first, 
But when detectives told Cecilia she could face charges of hindering an investigation, she started talking. Cecilia told officers she overheard Billy and Pam talking about the murder plot, but never thought they would actually go through with it. She also agreed to wear a wire. In the covert operation, police instructed her to initiate a conversation with Pam about the murder. And she ended up recording a damning conversation. On the recording, Pam is heard saying, quote, If you tell the effing truth, you'll send me to the slammer for the rest of my effing life. She then warned the girl, If you tell the truth, you're going to be an accessory to murder. With that, police had what they needed to arrest Pam Smart for the murder of her husband, Greg. Meanwhile, the teenage boys continued to deny any involvement in the murder. And after spending several months behind bars, the prosecutor decided to up the ante and told the teens they would be tried as adults for first-degree murder. With the realization that they could go to jail for life or possibly even face the death penalty, the three boys began to open up, admitting they carried out the crime on orders from Pam, who they said orchestrated the entire thing. They agreed to testify against Pamela Smart, which helped solidify the prosecutor's case against her. In exchange, the teens would be charged with second-degree murder instead of first-degree and receive a lighter sentence. In January 1991, eight months after Greg Smart was murdered, Billy Flynn, Pam Smart's ex-lover and the person who pulled the trigger, pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and received a sentence of 40 years to life. Pete Randall, who held a knife to Greg, also pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and received the same sentence. J.R. Latamy, who drove the getaway car, pleaded guilty to being an accomplice to second-degree murder and received a sentence of 18 years to life. Another person was also charged in the case. 19-year-old Raymond Fowler, who was the fourth person in the car the night Greg died, pleaded guilty to conspiracy to murder as well as attempted burglary and was sentenced to 30 years. Pamela Smart's trial began four months later, on March 4, 1991, in Exeter, New Hampshire, 30 miles from Derry, where she spent her short married life with Greg. Before the trial started, a judge refused a request by Pam's lawyers to move the proceedings to another county. Defense lawyers argued that the extensive media coverage would make it impossible for their client to get a fair trial. Since Pamela Smart's arrest, the case had been the subject of both local and national attention. Can we admit that we're all transfixed by that sick little soap opera trial in Exeter, New Hampshire? Call it Peyton Place meets Lord of the Flies. Salacious details about her relationship with Billy Flynn were splashed across the front pages of New England newspapers. Headlines calling her the Black Widow and the Kinky Teacher ran over pictures of Pam in a bikini, which were leaked by an anonymous source to the media. The story also received heavy coverage on local TV station WMUR. This is a News 9 special report. Good evening, I'm Tom Griffith. Once again tonight, we bring you a recap of testimony and developments in the Pamela Smart Accomplice to Murder trial. Tonight, we will be with you for a half hour. Nationally, it was covered on major network news, as well as tabloid shows like Hard Copy, A Current Affair, and The Geraldo Rivera Show. And the case was featured in articles in numerous publications, including People magazine. 
And Hollywood was still interested in the case. Cecilia Pierce, the teenager who wore a wire for police, sold her story to film producers for $100,000. With the media circus in the background, it was a surprising decision when the judge didn't sequester the jury, which would prevent the 12 people selected to decide Pamela Smart's fate from reading and watching news coverage each day as the case unfolded. You may remember that jurors in the O.J. Simpson case were sequestered during his entire trial. They couldn't go home for 265 days. Not so in Pamela Smart's trial. They were free to come and go with no restrictions on the media they consumed. On the first day of the trial, the courtroom was packed with media and spectators who lined up three hours early to get a seat inside to hear the prosecution's opening statement. Local TV station WMUR, which was granted permission by the court to air the trial live, preempted all regular programming, making it the first ever case to receive gavel-to-gavel coverage. During opening statements, New Hampshire Assistant Attorney General Diane Nicolosi portrayed Pamela Smart as a woman who willfully manipulated her teenage lover into murdering her husband. Nicolosi said that Pam Smart convinced Billy Flynn to carry out the killing with repeated threats that their affair would have to end if he didn't. And she promised Billy's friends $500 each to help him. But Pam Smart's defense lawyer, Mark Sisti, painted a radically different portrait of the teens. I'm going to tell you right now that when they are subjected to cross-examination, you're not going to see the whimpering puppies that have been characterized by the prosecution. You're going to see thrill killers, young thrill killers. These people are sick. When Billy Flynn took the stand, he described in detail his blossoming relationship with Pamela Smart, which eventually led to them having sex at her house while Greg Smart was away. He told the court it was after that encounter that Pam began talking about murder. Now, can you go take us back to her driving you home that night? What happened? In case you missed that, Billy testified that Pam said she couldn't divorce Greg and the only way they could be together was if they killed him. Court heard that Pam was worried she would lose everything, the condo, the furniture, and even their dog, if they divorced. Later, Billy tearfully described the night that he murdered Greg. I cocked the hammer back, you know, I pointed the gun at his head. After you pointed the gun at his head, what'd you do? I just stood there. How long was it? Um... A hundred years, it seemed like. And, uh... I said, um... God, forgive me. Then, Billy said, he pulled the trigger. Pete Randall, who held a knife to Greg Smart, also took the stand. And he, too, portrayed Pam as the mastermind of the murder plot. I asked her, could we go over the plan? Because I wanted to make sure everything was going to work. And she told me to, that we'd go in through the bulkhead. We should leave the bulkhead and the back door was unlocked. We'd go in, 
Make sure we didn't turn on any lights, not to hurt a dog, and that we could ransack the apartment, the condo, take what we wanted, and wait for Greg to come home. And when Greg came home, we would have killed him. The prosecution's list of witnesses also included Cecilia Pierce, the 16-year-old who wore a wire for police. The scratchy tape of a conversation they had while sitting in Pam's car outside her work was played for the jury. They listened with headphones and read along with a transcript as Pam repeatedly warned Cecilia if she told the truth, they would both end up in jail. When Pam Smart took the stand, she explained that the incriminating statements caught on tape were actually part of a game she devised to get information about her husband's murder from Cecilia, who seemed to know more than she was saying. Pam also admitted having an affair with Billy when he was just 15, but said she tried to end it in the weeks before the murder, adding that was the reason the teenager killed her husband, not because she told him to a point challenged by Prosecutor Paul Maggiato during cross-examination. Do you want this jury to understand that Bill Flynn decided to kill your husband because you broke up with him? I want this jury to understand the truth. Is that what you're claiming the truth is? I don't know why Bill Flynn killed Greg. I can just come in here and give my testimony. So even as you sit here today, you still have no idea why he may have done this. Is that it? I have not. I didn't say I had no idea, but I don't know specifically. Well, I'm asking you, what do you think? Why do you think he did this? probably because he thought we could be together. The trial was an obsession for those watching at home, and the intense media coverage turned the Rockingham County Courthouse into a madhouse. The parking lot and lawn outside was crowded with television satellite trucks, which allowed reporters to beam stories live all over the region and country. Reporters, photographers, and videographers lined the hall outside the courtroom and the tiny room where Pam was held during court breaks. Whenever she emerged for the short walk to the bathroom, TV lights were turned on and cameras flew into action. Spectators lined up each day throughout the trial to try to get one of the 30 public seats in the courtroom. There was a burning fascination with Pam that was stoked by the media, which reported on what she wore and how she looked each day which was usually a dress with a matching bow or barrette in her hair. For the most part, Pam remained calm and composed, rarely showing emotion, which earned her a nickname, the Ice Princess. On March 22, 1991, following a two-and-a-half-week trial, Pamela Smart was found guilty of all charges, accomplice to first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and witness tampering. That last one relates to the secret conversation she had with Cecilia Pierce. Pam received an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole. At the age of 23, she had spent her last day as a free woman. She would spend the rest of her natural life behind bars. Following Pam's conviction, the fascination about the case continued. Six months after the trial ended, a made-for-TV movie about the murder debuted on CBS. Murder in New Hampshire, the Pamela Smart story, starred Helen Hunt as Pam and Chad Allen as Billy Flynn. The following year, in 1992, journalist and author Joyce Maynard published her popular novel To Die For, which was inspired by the murder of Greg Smart. It was adapted into the 1995 film of the same name, 
Gus Van Sant's dark comedy featured Nicole Kidman and Matt Dillon as the young married couple, while Joaquin Phoenix played the teen murderer. Like the book, the movie To Die For was loosely inspired by the Pamela Smart case. But many assumed the shrewdly ambitious and ruthless killer played by Nicole Kidman was a representation of what Pam Smart was actually like. Something that added to the Black Widow, Ice Princess narrative that already existed. Meantime, Pamela Smart was sent to the New Hampshire State Prison for Women to serve out her life sentence. In 1993, without explanation, she was transferred to the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, a maximum security women's prison in upstate New York, where she remains today. Because of her notoriety, Pam has been targeted by fellow inmates and prison staff over the years. They beat her up in, in prison. They, they fractured her eye socket. She's got a plate in her face because she doesn't have sensation in one side of her face. They, they wrecked her teeth. They, they wrecked her knees. She's in constant pain. And then she gets raped by a guard. And, uh, and he, sells the, he sells the story before that to the National Enquirer um, that she's a head of a drug and sex ring. That's Dr. Eleanor Pam, a retired professor from City University of New York. She's been involved in Pam Smart's life for the past three decades. So I've been her media media representative and uh, academic advisor, friend, counselor, advocate, uh, spokesperson for, I don't know, since 1993. Dr. Pam was Pamela Smart's academic advisor for the two master's degrees she completed while in prison. She says because Pam wasn't allowed to use the prison classroom like other inmates, they were forced to work together in the visiting room. Uh, so I went in with nothing, sat with her in on a plastic chair, very uncomfortable, clanging vending machines and screaming children and um, quarrelsome couples and... Uh, <laughs> And I sat there for two years, just just facing her and teaching her and talking to her. During their time together, Pam Smart, who maintains her innocence, began to talk about her case. It quickly became clear to the professor that Pam didn't receive a fair trial, starting with the judge's decision not to sequester the jury. They were able to read the newspapers and talk to their families. One of them went into a bar and was watching it on television and talking about the case. The juror was reported to the judge, but was allowed to continue with jury duty anyway. That's one example. There's another where a woman was writing a book and, and every night writing in her diary and then tries to sell the book. And there was something else. The three boys who testified against Pam were not separated in jail. They were in the same cell throughout the trial. And they were able to watch on television each other testify. They could coordinate their stories. I mean, it was the whole thing was so crazy and so stacked against her. All three boys who are now men have been released from prison. Billy Flynn, who pulled the trigger, and Pete Randall, who held a knife to Greg, were both paroled in 2015 after serving nearly 25 years. J.R. Latamy, who drove the getaway car, was released in 2005 after serving 14 years. And Raymond Fowler, who was also in the car, spent 12 years in prison and was paroled in 2003. 
Dr. Eleanor Pam believes that Pamela Smart is innocent. But even if you don't, you probably agree that it doesn't make sense that she received life without parole while Billy Flynn, who actually pulled the trigger, is free. Dr. Pam has a theory on why Pamela Smart has been treated differently. Well, to me, um, it's starting with Adam and Eve, where (laughs) Adam plea bargains and the book is thrown at Eve. And that's what happened in the trial. Uh, And everybody hates Eve. Nobody hates Adam. (laughs) It's so interesting. The the blame is on her uh, with the apple. And, um, And that's what happened to Pam. Dr. Pam says the sexism that was involved in Pam Smart's case was extraordinary. You couldn't read an article without reading about that she was so pretty and that she wore this and that she had a bow in her hair and that she was sexy and, um, you know, who wouldn't murder the husband uh, if she weren't, you know, willing to sleep with them. And uh, it was extraordinary. And the sexism, you know, has switched a little now that she's older. Now they write about how she's lost her looks. (laughs) It's always focusing on her looks. They don't talk about any of the boys in terms of what they look like and what they're wearing. Dr. Pam and many others have been advocating for Pamela Smart's release for a number of years, including author Joyce Maynard, who wrote the book To Die For, which the 1995 movie was based on. In a 2015 letter to the New Hampshire governor, she wrote, If the existence of the film and adaptation of the book has contributed in any way to a public perception of Pamela Smart as a ruthlessly ambitious killer, I will say this was not my intent. She continued, To whatever extent Pamela Smart's chances for a fair parole hearing might have been affected by my novel, I trust that you will do what you can to rectify that situation by giving her the same second chance granted the others involved in the case. Maynard has been joined by other prominent women's rights activists who have also written to the state of New Hampshire on Smart's behalf, including feminist icon Gloria Steinem and the Vagina Monologues creator Eve Ensler. Pam, who is now 55 and an ordained minister who preaches sermons on Sundays to a large inmate congregation, has petitioned New Hampshire's Executive Council for a parole hearing with no success. So she's never been asked a single question by these folks. And sometimes their decision is made like within, in this case, two, in two minutes and 40 seconds. And very often when they've turned her down for these hearings, uh, which, we're in, which we've asked for, we're allowed every two years to come back before them. They'll give statements to the press. You know, we're never going to vote yes for her or she's never this and she's awful and she's never going to be rehabilitated. And it, it always felt to us like they had made up their minds in advance before they even, and, and we, we don't even, we're suspicious that they ever read a single page of what we've submitted. A big part of the reason New Hampshire has opposed the idea of commuting Pam's sentence is in part because she has not admitted guilt in the actual killing of Greg Smart. In more recent years, Pam has shifted her stance slightly. While she maintains her innocence, she has apologized to the Smart family and acknowledged that her decision to have an affair with Billy Flynn set things in motion that resulted in Greg's murder. But she will never, ever confess to a crime she didn't commit, which could open the door to clemency. 
In a recent interview with the New York Times, Pamela Smart called it the clemency conundrum. If she admits to being a cold-hearted killer, they will let her out. But if she says she is rehabilitated, they won't. Over the years, Pam Smart's case has been passed from one lawyer to another, until finally Dr. Pam called in a favor from someone close to her. I turned to my husband, who happens to be a first-rate lawyer, and I said to him, I've been, uh, I've been involved in her case all these years, and um, it's time for you to get involved too, and I hereby decree that you are now Pamela Smart's lawyer. And... And that was my pillow talk with him. And by command, he became uh, just about as involved with her as I did and uh, was instrumental in bringing his firm in as well. And, and the petitions that we write for her every two years uh, is largely his work and mine and some of his firms. Earlier this year, they decided to try another tactic. With the help of Mark Sisti, Pam Smart's original defense lawyer from her trial, they asked the New Hampshire Supreme Court to force the executive council to grant Pam a parole hearing. But on March 28, 2023, the court dismissed the petition, saying it lacked jurisdiction and didn't have the power to force the executive council to grant Pam a hearing. There is one other legal avenue that Pam's lawyers are still considering they may ask New York's governor for clemency on the grounds that she's been a de facto resident of New York State for the past three decades. But even Dr. Eleanor Pam admits it's a long shot. Thanks for listening to this look back at the story of Pamela Smart and, of course, her husband, Greg, whose family remembers him as a handsome young man with a bright future he would have turned 58 this year. Thanks also to Dr. Eleanor Pam for bringing me up to speed on this case. In addition to her work with Pamela Smart, Dr. Pam, who hails from Brooklyn, New York, is the president of the Veteran Feminists of America. If you've got a suggestion for a show, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message through social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also send me an email. The address is 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Valesquez. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.